the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Dennis Waitley. Dennis has studied and counseled winners in every field from Apollo astronauts to Super Bowl champions, from sales achievers to government leaders and youth groups. During the 1980s, he served as chairman of psychology on the U.S. Olympic Committee's Sport Medicine Council, responsible for performance enhancement of all U.S. Olympic athletes. With over 10 million audio programs sold in 14 languages, Dennis is one of the most listened to voices on personal and career success. He is the author of 16 nonfiction books, including several international bestsellers. His audio album, The Psychology of Winning, is the all-time best-selling program on self-mastery. In this episode, we discuss motivation as an inner force that compels behavior, personal responsibility for outcomes and how that determines success, and your brain as the most marvelous GPS system ever created. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So, Dennis, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Self-reliance means that I take responsibility for the outcomes of my life, that I don't blame circumstances, my parents, the government, the environment, that I look in the mirror and say, if it is to be, it is up to me because the choices that I make determine the outcomes that result. That's a fantastic uh, definition, and I think we in alignment with that. So kind of moving into just what we said we would talk about, I'm really interested to hear your ideas behind motivation as an inner force and how that compels our, our behavior. Well, I'm very much interested in motivation. You know, it means motive within, that within which drives. And I think the motive for doing something is even more important than the amount of effort we put into it because the passion behind the motive is what keeps people persevering. So there are externals that motivate us and we're all motivated externally. We're motivated by money, possession, uh, by having peer acceptance, by being somebody special, uh, competitiveness and acquisition of things. Those are all extremely powerful motivators, but to me, the most dominant motivators are the ones that are intrinsic, which would mean a concern for excellence just for its own sake, just to, shall we say, outperform ourselves and surprise ourselves by reaching inside. And the other would be to be able to achieve without having somebody tell you what to do. In other words, to, to be independently able to think your way through a situation would be a tremendous motivator. Mm. So what I hear you saying there and something that I just picked up on, something I think about all the time as well, a lot of times when people are trying to motivate themselves, and I, I, I suppose there's, there's something to be said for this. It does work for some people where they try to motivate themselves based on looking at other people and trying to outdo them. 
But in my experience, it's really important that you are personally challenged and in a way, stop worrying about the, those externals and really focus on what you can actually do as an individual. So really what I'm saying there is stop trying to compete with everybody else and really key in what's important and challenge yourself and see that as the energy that you need to move forward. Extremely well put. I believe in that completely. I believe that let's say there's a, an older woman in England and she has a rose garden and she loves her rose garden. She loves roses. She, the fragrance, the beauty, but she doesn't need to enter them into the contest. They don't need to win the blue ribbon in the local London uh, competition. She does it for its own beauty and its own excellence. In other words, a gallery of your own creation, a gallery of one. To me, that's the most powerful motivator of all, is doing something for pure excellence and passion because it makes you feel worthwhile to do it. So I guess my next question is, and this is something I struggle with just when I'm trying to talk to people and help them through difficulties. One of the things that I see a lot of people struggle with is really defining what this is that they're passionate about. What should they pursue? What should they focus on? Do you have any words of wisdom in respect to finding what that actually is? It's been a long journey for me, many, many years finding it out. But I found that when I dusted off my childhood, when I look back at age 7 to 17, those were the years when I was budding, uh, blooming, exploring, trying things out. And I think uh, therein lies some of your greatest possibilities because you begin to express your intrinsic talents, those things that you were gifted and your conception. And those things oftentimes end up being just hobbies. They're things that you love to do, but you get caught up in making money, which we all do. We all have to put food on the table and we all have to have, if we have children, responsibilities. And many times we get caught in a profession that we don't love. And it's too bad because it would be great if we could work our lives in something like a school teacher or an artist or a musician somebody who would go to work every day just for the sheer exhilaration of a piece of bread and a roof over their head. So I think dusting off your childhood is one thing. What did you love to do age seven to 17? What did you love to do most in school? What did you like to do after school? What did you love to do on Saturdays? And today, let's fast forward to today. What do you like to do when you get off work? If you didn't have to work, you didn't need to earn money. What would you do with your time? And what do you love to do most in your free time? And therein lies the passion of the possibility of another profession, especially in recent times when the whole way we do business changes. You know, as you and I have discovered, Zoom has a greater capitalization than all of the airlines combined now because Zoom is the new airlines globally. Instead of getting on a plane, you and I are talking here. We can talk all over the world. That is so new and so different. So I just go back to the answer to the question. Look at what turned you on in your free time when you didn't have to do something. And therein you will find a talent that you should explore fully. I totally agree with that. And that's definitely something that's resonated for me. And I would say that you're not the first person on the show to say that, which is also interesting. 
I guess my next follow-up to that would be anybody listening to this, and I get that, that kind of that fear, and I'd like to hear from your, from your perspective how to get around this. But as you noted, we are so obsessed and focused on making a living. And I, and I get why that is, right? Everybody's got to pay their bills. There's no free ride on this planet, unfortunately. You know, and if you're not able to make the money that you need to make, the, the worst possible thing could happen. You find yourself out on the streets and homeless. So if somebody has something that they feel passionate about, they can go back, they look at their childhood, they go, okay, I can see that these were the things that I was most in love with growing up and I would love to pursue that. But leaving the comfort or the stability of where I am right now in favor of that, that's a scary proposition for a lot of people. How do, how do we overcome that? How do we get past that? You know, the most important thing is to remember that time and health are the two ingredients that you can't repurchase once you spend them. So health and time are spendables, but they're not savable. And so if you live every minute now as if it were your last, but you, like Gandhi said, if you dream and think about living forever. So what I do is I realize I'm in the fourth quarter of the grand final or the World Cup or the Super Bowl. I happen to be in the last five minutes of the fourth quarter of that of that particular game. And I realize now that there was nothing at the top. In other words, what I was striving for was notoriety and to be somebody, to be worship, love, needed, whatever it is, that feeling that we all have to be special. If I would have spent a little more time doing what I loved minute to minute. So my advice is live in the moment, but not for the moment because you'll only get 14 minutes of glory anyway. And as you get older, the older you get, the more, shall we say, indispensable or dispensable you are. The more, you know, I look at it as the older I get, the less relevant I become. And finally, I'm only relevant to my dear friends and family. So if somebody would just stop for a minute and say, wait a minute, what I'm doing in this minute is the only moment of time over which I have any control. The past is a casual check. The future is a promissory note. Today is hard cash. How am I going to spend my hard cash today? And make sure that you're doing something in this minute that helps determine the outcome of your future. I was talking to my family just last night, and we were saying if we wouldn't have done that momentary thing in that moment, everything would be changed. None of us would be here. So if I would not have, when I was a jet pilot in the Navy, if I wouldn't have decided to marry their mother and if they hadn't decided to go with me on this trip and if somebody hadn't been sick that day and it all came down to a minute by minute in the minute situation in life. So if somebody will please stop living on someday aisle. Stop looking for perfection. Stop procrastinating and, and start doing instead of doing. There'll never be a perfect moment because this, this is the moment. So I'm, I'm really suggesting, I'm, I'm actually pleading with your audience at my age as an octogenarian. I'm saying don't wait for the future. It's already here. And make sure you're, you're fully engaged today. And by the way, this is the time to bring your A game. This is not the time to be sitting around frustrated, worrying, and stewing. 
This is the time when you get confidence, when you get clarity, when, when fear should make you have a sentinel. It should be your sentinels to say, wait a minute, I need to be thinking about what I'm going to do next to make this better. I'm going to be clear. I'm going to be relaxed. I'm going to be more confident because when things are going well, I coast. But when things are beginning to get difficult, that's when I met my best. And believe it or not, Rodney, I wrote my best work at the worst of times. So I wrote Psychology of Winning when I was losing, and I was losing big. I was divorced. My children were mutinying. They wanted to go home. They didn't want to be with me. It was a cold winter. And the long story is I reached inside of myself and said, wait a minute. I'm the one that needs to be winning. I'm the one that needs this. I'm not doing this so I can make money and help other people. I'm doing it because I'm calling inside for me to change my life. So at the worst of times, I needed to be at my very best. Yeah, that's beautiful. And just as you were saying that, which I didn't mention to you in the beginning, was that I remember listening to Psychology of Winning. I think if I remember correctly, I must have been about 21. That's a very long time ago. So it's pretty amazing that I'm actually talking to you. So based on that, I guess what holds a lot of people back, right, is that everybody has had their, their moments, their tough moments, their obstacles, their demons. Some of us still have to deal with it even today. And I guess a lot of times that's the thing that's holding people back. But when I look back in my history and look at where I've come from to where I am today, and I think that's really what you're saying, right, is that I really needed those moments, even the most difficult ones, to get to where I am now. I think so. You know, failure is, is a, a given, uh, you know, unless you're not doing anything. And of course, I'd rather fail at doing something than succeed at doing nothing. So I look at failure as the fertilizer of success. You don't want it. You don't like it. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't feel good. I've got bags of it all over my house, bags of failures. And I'm looking at failure as a detour instead of a dead end, as a temporary inconvenience. A failure is not a person. A failure is an event or a series of events that you need to learn from rather than get buried under. And so you really grow from your failures by using them as target corrections. And the other thing to understand, I didn't know this until I was working with the Olympians. There never was a winner who wasn't a beginner. And when you begin anything, you're awkward. So as a little Olympic gymnast, you're falling, you can't do the handstand, you fall on the balancing beam, you're awkward, you say, I'll never be able to do this. But practice makes permanent with a good coach and role models and mentors. The next thing you know, the habit of excellence replaces the habit of, of falling. So be willing to be foolish in the beginning because we all are foolish and awkward when we're doing something out of our comfort zone. But be willing to look foolish. Be willing to be laughed at. Be willing to be uncomfortable, realizing that everyone experiences that discomfort when we're reaching and growing. I'm glad you said that. When you were saying that, I was, you know, I was thinking about, you know, especially when people like yourself that on paper, when you look at it, have achieved a lot of great things, right? And so people tend to look at just your success. And they go, wow, you know what? I want to be just like Dennis. I just, I want to be able to be as successful as he's been. But people don't realize that actually it wasn't all success, as you said, right? There were 
times when things didn't work out, when you failed and you had to, like everybody else, you had to pick yourself up and you had to keep pushing forward. That's so true. You know, I was in China recently and this young woman stood up and said, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so perfect. And I'm so, uh, I'm so unsuccessful. I'm a, I'm a 27 year old divorced mother of a daughter living with my mother. And because I had a daughter, no man wants to marry me because they all want a son. And I said, hold on, hold on. I said, wow, you're very attractive. You have a great job. You're a bit well-educated, a beautiful young daughter. Wow. I said, oh, you were divorced when? She said, what, what, three years ago. I said, oh, I thought you were going through a divorce, but you were divorced. So it, it was, is, is it final? Yes, but I'm divorced. I said, no, you're unmarried or single. You were divorced when you were, and now you're an unmarried woman. I said, don't carry the event forward. I said, I was divorced and I made a mistake and it was my fault. In other words, I chose beauty over, shall we say, the inside. I was looking for eye candy rather than inner soul. And I said, I made my own mistake. And she said, I can't believe that you are divorced. I said, no, I was, I'm not divorced. I'm, I'm Dennis Waitley, I have a family, I'm, do I'm doing better now, but, but I did fail. And here's the point, just don't carry it on your back. It, it is not a bag that you need to carry. You need to not carry your bag of failures, carry your blessings, your achievements, and your goals. Put your blessings in your bag, your little achievements in your bag, put your goals in your bag, You'll take your bag with you everywhere you go rather than exchange bags with someone else. If you study other people deep down, you'll find nobody has that life that the celebrities see as perfect. I think also for a lot of people, they're always waiting for these monumentous moments of success and they don't look at the little successes that they make in every day and they don't champion those successes for themselves and celebrate them and give themselves a pat on the back. And that's something that I try to do in my own life. And I try to bring that across to my boys and my other two, two sons. And I always say to them, you know, you want to achieve X, but ultimately it may take some time to get there. It might be a longer road than you expect, but on the way you're going to have some mini successes. And each time you have those successes, you need to celebrate them. You need to give yourself a pat on the back. I think some people feel like that's kind of weird, right? Like, why am I saying awesome job when it's such a small little success, but small successes taken together ultimately lead to the ultimate goal, the big success that we're driving towards. Really true, Rodney. You know, that, that, that again is well said, which is why you have your program, you have all your followers, why you're successful in what you do, because you're a great coach and mentor. It's really the little things. They, they really are the ones that count. It's being there in person for a recital, not just for the final event. In other words, showing up for other people is the greatest gift you can give someone. A text won't cut it. A tweet won't do it. An email won't do it. Even a phone call won't do it. But if you're there, you mean you took your time out to be with me even though it's only a practice? Well, yes, I, I'm interested in you. You're important to me. And we can't always do that. But that's the beauty of having virtual communication. We're as close as we can get. But I think the little things, a handwritten note, something in someone's lunch, 
saying something before you go to sleep, saying, I love you. You can't take back what you didn't do, and you can't do what you didn't do, but if you do it now. So what, my new mantra is, I think it, I see it, I do it. I take the time right when it's there to reach for the phone or to reach for that. I don't just put it on layaway or on some to-do list for the future. When you get to be my age, you don't buy green bananas and you, you don't put things off. You do them because you realize this is the only moment that you're assured of having at that certain point in life. And so the little things, you know, that we talk about your children will never remember the money you spent on them. They will only remember the time you spent with them. The tears, the laughter, the stupid, funny things, they'll talk about that forever. But they will not say, remember when you gave me the $500 or you bought me the this? Those things are expendable, but not the moment shared. And that could be one of the most important things that we get out of the challenge we've had of having to be self-isolated, socially distanced, totally changing the way we deal with each other. Those moments where we've had to be with people that we are not used to being with a lot and that we can't be with some people we're used to traveling to. So those moments are precious and guard them as the most precious diamonds you'll ever have. So building off that, I think this leads into that also is one of the things I was talking about actually on this, this past weekend, I was uh, coaching at an event called Mindful Man, which is on the Isle of, Isle of Man. And the whole idea of the, 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 the day was about learning to be more, more present, more mindful in life. And somebody asked me about how do you actually practice that and where should I practice it? And I said to them, you know, what you should do is you should look for the things that, the, the things that are the mundane that typically trip you up. Now be that, you know, somebody asking you to wash the dishes and you get really frustrated and irritated about it. Or you go to the store and there's a, there's a line and you have to stand in that queue again and that really frustrates you. Or you're on your way to work and just people, you know, you, you feel that road rage coming up inside you. I said, those are the moments. Those are probably the best teaching moments. The things that we just take for granted, the way that we just tend to react to situations and then in hindsight we go i wish i didn't react like that those are the teaching moments that's the best time to actually learn to be more in control of yourself and be more present and learn to manage the way that you approach those experiences that's so true in fact the only time i ever use any negative self-talk at all is when i know i'm doing something that is wrong like i'm preaching i'm scolding I'm being arbitrary. I'm being, shall we say, a little mean and ugly. I'm having a bad hair day. And I'm able to say to myself, stop. Bad seeds, stop now. Be the first to admit that I'm wrong. Be the first to ask for forgiveness. Be the first to make the call to say, you know, I want to apologize for that. I, I reacted, I overreacted, and so I'm learning to take a deep breath, step back, and wait a moment before I make that decision. Before I say that or give that mean look or come back a little strong, I'm learning to do that because those teachable moments are the most important of all, and, and I think they are. And I'm learning more about myself by 
stepping back and, and admitting to my, I just did that to my son. Uh, his name is Dennis Waitley Jr. And he was posting something on Facebook that was a little bit, shall we say, harsh. I said, come on, uh, you know, we're not that kind of people. And, I, and he said, well, does that mean that you're worried about your reputation because of what I'm saying? I said, hmm, uh, you may be right and you've got a good point. I said, but wouldn't it be better to use uh, a little different language? And he said, well, he said, we are in some kind of battle of ideas. And I said, well, how about a, how about a text or a tweet? But how about Facebook as being, here's what I'm doing for solutions. Uh, how about not ranting and raving? I said, I'm not preaching to you but I was coming back and pushing back at you because I was more worried about Dennis Waitley senior than I was about Dennis Waitley, the new generation. I'm finally able to stop before I go into my lecture because my kids used to say, is this your 30 minute or 40 minute presentation dad? <laughs> and, so, and so they would ask me, you know, I adopted a girl from Mexico and I was preaching to my kids, how do you account for the fact that she's doing better than many of you? And they said, it's easy to explain. We have your genes and she's adopted. <laughs> so at any rate, I, I, that, that thing you're talking about, that moment, that learnable, teachable moment, not just for others, our children, the teachable moment for ourselves, what we learn from the way we stop and consider another way to handle the situation. I'm changing a lot that way. I used to be pretty much my way or the highway, you know, former Navy jet pilot, former military, pretty set my ways, pretty pragmatic, but boy, have I learned to listen and use these two ears and keep this big mouth shut so that I can learn from other people and not push their negative hot button, but listen for their positive hot button and for what turns them on, not for what turns them off. What's really powerful there and what you said, just talking about the advice to your son, and that's something I think people should take note of, is that instead of just always getting into these battles, these rants and criticism, which seems to be very much prevalent in our new social media environment, rather than doing that, I, I really like what you said, you know, offer some solutions. And I think that's the thing, right? It's, it's very easy to criticize, but it's a different ballgame altogether if you just take the time to think about how can I make a change here? And that becomes really positive because then you start looking at problems and the world in a very different way, in a more positive way, and it's more productive if you go that way. It sure is. And I had someone uh, mention yesterday, they said, I remember 20 years ago, we were in Australia together. He got a call from his wife that said their son had had a, a major meltdown in the classroom and the teacher had to call them and his son did something that he wouldn't imagine his son could do. So he was ready to punish him. And I said, uh, just hold on a minute. You're both upset. He shouldn't have done that. This damages your self-esteem as parents. But I said, think about it. Make sure that your discipline is a, as a disciple. Discipline means to learn from, not to punish. So when you're disciplining him, yes, you want to remove a privilege, but don't take away his Taekwondo lessons. Don't take away the senior prom that's coming up because those two things, 
Taekwondo, a way of building himself and his own self-worth, the senior prom, a major event in his life, make sure that you're disciplining in a way that is a teachable moment and is constructive instead of something that will rob him of his self-worth, which we tend to do. Boy, punishment, you know, being made a fool of and being made to feel unworthy in the presence of other people or your family is the worst punishment of all. You know, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's worse than go to your room or being in a corner. At least you like being in your room. Uh, but boy, to be scolded in front of other people or to be made a fool of is something that we have to be very careful. So teachable moments should be use of constructive ways. So saying, you know, and I've done this lately. If I reprimand, it's for a particular event but I make sure that I say something and do something afterwards to make sure they know that the love and confidence in them is still there, that I'm not sending them off of feeling low because we do that. We attack and prove a lot and we feel good about being powerful. And, you know, many politicians and many leaders in business, they're, 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 they tend to, to be overboard in the way they manage and use their power. But the more power we have, the less we should use it, and we should empower rather than have power over others. That's a really good pivot point, I think, to talk about the second thing we said we would talk about, which is about personal responsibility, and how that really leads and becomes the outcome that determines our success. Just as a side note there, why I think that's so important, taking personal responsibility, especially when you find yourself in the most difficult of situations. When I was growing up, I grew up with a, an abusive alcoholic mother. She kicked me out of the house when I was 17. I was sleeping on the streets of Johannesburg. I had nowhere to go. I had no money. And the thing that just rang true to me at that moment in time, and I just read it actually a couple of weeks before, which was interesting, was Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And he was making that point about the loss of human freedoms is our ability to choose our own attitude in any given set of circumstances. And that really comes down to taking personal responsibility. I might have not created the situation, but I still had to take personal responsibility for how that was going to unfold. Well, absolutely. Well, you really, you really hit my hot button because in 1965, my boss, Dr. Jonas Salk, the inventor of the first effective polio vaccine, introduced me to Dr. Viktor Frankl at United States International University in San Diego. And I took his class about man's search for meaning. And I will remember for the rest of my life when he said, when we were there in the death camps in Auschwitz, and I was helping lead the resistance movement by giving them a reason for living. He said, we're not accountable or life's not accountable to us to give it meaning. We're accountable to life. And he said, if you took your last piece of bread and shared it, rather than ate it, you would live longer than if you ate your last piece of bread. Mm -hmm. By the very fact of taking responsibility for something greater than yourself, a meaning greater than just you, another person, an animal, a garden, having the responsibility for that gives you a passion and purpose for living in itself. That was good. And that's the other thing he said is there should be a statue of responsibility to match the Statue of Liberty. If there were another statue, she should be on Alcatraz. 
and she would be standing there beckoning the immigrants as the Statue of Liberty does, but she would say, choose wisely, choose your freedom because freedom has another side to it. The responsibility of choosing to be responsible rather than end up incarcerated because of the choices that you made that were not good for you or for others. I never forgot that and I'm not into statues, but if there ever were one, I always think of Viktor Frankl because he said, we're responsible for the choices that we make that have a consequence or reward of those actions. And I think that's one of the things today that really does create the tipping point in a society. When you start depending on other people for your worth, for your outcomes, you are slowly giving up the very freedom of choice that you were so desperately wanting to maintain because the forgotten side of freedom is I need to choose on setting an example in my own life. So I was thinking when you were saying that, just thinking back to that time, one of the things that I made a point of doing, one, taking personal responsibility for where I was, but I've always remembered that the one thing that I did right was that I chose never to make a decision that would end up hurting somebody else. And I think that's really important. So when we talk about being personally responsible, it, it sometimes might sound like we're talking about being narcissistic. And it's not about that. It's that, you know, you're going to make the choices you need to make to ensure that you survive and you are successful and you thrive, but it should never be done at the expense of other people's health, wellness, and their own, um, you know, feelings and, uh, and happiness. Well, again, Rodney, I think you've made, for me, one of the most important points in my whole life, which I have called the double win. Uh, if you win, I win. If I help you win, then I win. Only if we both win is there a winning outcome. And the other thing about that is so important to understand that life is a progressive realization of worthwhile goals that benefit other people as well as me. If what I do is at the expense of my family, my children, my friends, somebody I exploited, I'm trying to make money out of an audience. I'm over-promising and under-delivering. Those are the kinds of things that get people in trouble because those are the selfish things. Not wanting to be successful, but wanting other people and coaching them. I call it servant leadership instead of status seeking. If you're a status seeker, you want to be number one. If you're a servant leader, you want everyone's vote to rise with the tide. You want to make sure that what you're doing is helping them. And that gives you the greatest feeling of worth rather than the pharaohs and all of their pyramids and their money. So, Dennis, what I did in that space was I had always had a passion for martial arts. And that's kind of what I took at that moment in time when I was out on the streets and I had nothing. And I turned that into a career. And once I turned it into a career, I looked at how I can allow other people to do the same thing. And so I created a couple of programs that are now taught all over the world. And I've helped people who, just like myself, who came from unforgiving backgrounds and thought that they would never be able to achieve anything in life, turn their life around with martial arts and ultimately create businesses that they're now able to not only support themselves, but their, their families. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And had I not done that, and had I just been focused, as you noted, just purely on myself and my own, my own self-importance and my own success, 
I think ultimately I would have ended up crashing and burning and I would have just become another statistic. I think so too, Rodney. I, I think, you know, martial arts is the ultimate within teaching the power within to other people so they can use that in every aspect of their lives. And, and as a teacher of that, you're really reaching out and especially the young people having martial arts and having that ability to control emotional responses and to be, you know, I'm not good at martial arts, but boy, do I understand the, the mental game behind that and why physically and emotionally and mentally it's so important. So I think you made a really good choice and, and uh, it's borne out to be that way. What's important there too, right, is what you said about going back and looking at what really fired you up as a child. And that was really the thing that fired me up. I mean, I remember watching those old Kung Fu movies on the reel back in the day and just seeing this unassuming guy become the hero of the movie and just transform his life. And he's just the way that he looked at the world just purely through this experience of martial arts. And there was always that teacher who would teach about martial arts as a way of life and not just about violence. And that was the thing that really spoke to me. And as you noted, definitely the thing that I've realized through my experience as a martial artist is how important that inner game is, which is really a good pivoting point for our last thing we said we would talk about, which is just really about the brain. And you describe it as this marvelous GPS system that was ever created. Speak to us a little bit about that. Well, finally, neuroscience is backing up positive thinking. So it used to be just, well, Dennis is an optimist. He's Jiminy Cricket. You know, he's wearing rose-colored glasses. And it's a real world, Dennis. It's full of problems and challenges and bad people. I said, I understand that. But nonetheless, there is a lot of good. I prefer to look at the flowers rather than focusing on the weeds. But the brain is so incredible that it wants to know what's important to you. And it has this mechanism inside that is the guardian of your thoughts and it filters. And it only looks for things that are very important to keep you alive, to keep you breathing, to keep you eating, to keep you having water. It's very, very interested in what's important. Now, if what's important to you is everything wrong with the world, it will find everything wrong that you might want. It'll find everything bad in a speaker, in a movie, in a book, and in a politician. If you're looking for the worst, it will find it for you. However, if you tell it specifically, this marvelous little R2D2, this are you me too mechanism in the brain, if you say, look, uh, it smells like this, it tastes like this, it, it's this color, it's this shape, it's this size, and it's so emotional to me. This is what I, I really want. And the brain says, oh, you're finally giving clarity to what's important to you. Tell me more. And the more specific you become on what you desire, the more it shows up in the store window, in what somebody's conversation is. In other words, you get what you come for in life, and you get what's in the store window of your outward view. So instead of taking selfies of yourself, turn that camera out on what you desire and be on the lookout for solutions every day. The brain, if you tell it where you are, here's where I am, I've got this education, I've had this problems, I've got this limitation, I'm this age, I'm this tall, I'm a man or a woman, I'm this, and I wanna do this. And the brain says, okay, we're here, and you wanna go here. 
Tell me more about the here. Is there an address? Yes, it's sort of. And you give it the address. And the GPS, the goal positioning system, instead of a global positioning satellite, will make every correction necessary to try to get you through feedback from the target to get where you want to go. It'll create an overpass where there was a cul-de-sac. It'll go through a construction zone. Instead of red lights, it'll see green lights. And it'll change the way you are if you're able to convince your brain you won't stop doing anything. You have to put a new highway over the old highway so you don't get rid of streets and cul-de-sacs. You build a bridge over them by repetition, observation, imitation, repetition. And the more you repeat these sensory things, the more the brain homes in. And pretty soon you become a solution seeker instead of a problem seeker. I think what you're also saying there, it's not just simply about thinking positive, but it's also about taking positive action. I think that's sometimes where people miss that, right? Is that first you have to obviously align, as you said, your, your mind, your thinking mind with what you want, but that in itself is great, but you still need to take action. As small as the, as we kind of been talking about, it doesn't matter if the action are small steps, but you still need to take action towards the direction where you want to end up. Again, that's another important kernel of wisdom. The law of attraction takes action. The Mercedes Benz or BMW does not show up in your driveway without giving $175,000 worth of value to the dealership. So you need to be taking the action to make the law of attraction work. It's an unfailing boomerang. And that is one of the missing links in people who are said, I've been visualizing I've been internalizing, I've been meditating. I have the dream all set and yet it's not coming to it's not coming to me. And that's because you're not taking the action steps. I had a young driver say, "I want to be a rock star." And I said, "Great. Uh, you're driving a UPS truck. Okay, we all need to earn. Uh, where are you singing now?" He said, "No, no, I have this job and then we just have a new child and you know I'm 24, and I said, well, wait a minute. You need to be doing what you want to be doing now because unless you're doing it, you're putting on layaway, and it's only a Sunday aisle. You need to be someday now in the smallest way with the little baby step because you'll find that every success has been taking incremental baby steps in order to get to the big goal at the end. Delayed gratification and hanging in there are more important than the dream itself, I think, just being action-oriented. That's very powerful. So as we come to the end, Dennis, what I wanted to ask you, you keep alluding to the fact that you kind of, you know, you're at that final part of, of, of the game of life. We don't have to give your age away. But based on the life that you've lived, and it's been an amazing life, what would you want to leave people with? What would, be the, what would you think would be the most important thing for them to hear from you right now, especially for young people who have still got a life ahead of them? I think the most important thing is to realize that life is a minute by minute experience. And it is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And the object is not to come in first. The object is to last and be best at what you do to make it last, to savor each moment as if it were a double rainbow and a 
a fine wine, but but to get your senses involved on a daily basis and and smell the rose and pet the dog and say I love you and toss the kid's head and do something nice and say hello to people and and be engaged on a daily basis because if I could live my life again, I would spend less time reading magazines that are made of wood. I would climb a tree instead. I would be engaged and I would get up out of my chair instead of watching other people making money, having fun. So here's what I would do. Stop watching other people making money, having fun in their professions. But instead, use prime time, the time of your life, to live it rather than watch it. Because they want you to watch them because they're doing what they love. And every time you watch, they're getting better ratings because you're a viewer instead of a doer. Be a doer, not a viewer. And you'll live the happiest life because you will have lived every moment rather than waited for the perfect time. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.